The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good morning to you, Kobus. Good morning. Kobus, at the time of this recording, 563 people have died from the novel coronavirus, up from 490 people just the day before by the time that people listen to this podcast, that number will have increased potentially by a lot. Uh, there are now 28,000 confirmed cases of people who are infected with the virus in China, and that number has been going up a lot every single day. Now, so far in Africa, uh, there are no confirmed cases. There have been a lot of suspected cases. People have been quarantined. Uh, but people are now, and governments are now mounting up the defenses. They're going to the battle stations. We're seeing screenings at all the major ports of entry. There is this sense of concern that uh, that this thing is coming. They're not really, really sure if public health systems are capable of dealing with it, because if we have an outbreak like what we're seeing in China, it will be very, very hard to contain in many parts of Africa. And in one of the key issues that people are concerned about, Cobus, is Ethiopian airlines. And this is something that I'd like to get your take on right now before we get to our discussion today about Kenya. Ethiopian airlines is only one of two African airlines. Air Algerie is the other one that is continuing to fly direct. A lot of people are very concerned about Ethiopia's decision to keep their flights going. Uh, I contended in an inter- in a article that I wrote earlier this week that they are jeopardizing hard-won brand equity that they have built up over years because if people find out that a case that was confirmed came from someone who traveled on a direct flight from Ethiopia, I think they're going to go back to Ethiopian Airlines and be very angry. Kobus, what's your take on the situation with direct flights from Ethiopia? I agree with you that it's it's you know it's an interesting choice um, a to not to not stop the flights and b to not really communicate very effectively about why you're doing it um, you know so so in in the statements that they've put out they they reference the World Health Organization um, you know which which in the past was a little bit critical about the, about very quick move to to block all flights um, but I think the situation has really evolved since then it, it's changing very quickly and it's a bit baffling that they're not that they're not more engaged um, with their customers about what's happening right now so Addis Ababa is one of the major hubs that the World Health Organization and Ethiopia is focused on. Nairobi and Kenya is another major hub, and that is going to be the focus of our discussion today to talk about how Kenya is dealing with the burgeoning crisis. And for some perspective on this, we are so happy to have on the show for the first time uh, Elizabeth Marab, who is the health and science reporter at the Daily Nation newspaper. She joins us from the newsroom today in a very, very busy week. Elizabeth, thank you so much for taking time to join us. Thank you for having me on the show, uh, Eric. We really appreciate it. Now, I'm a little confused because last week at this time, Kenya's high commissioner to China, otherwise known as the ambassador, Sarah Sarem, she announced that uh, they would not evacuate Kenyan students and citizens 
out of China to come back to Kenya because they were concerned that by bringing people over from Kenya who potentially could be infected, um, that would then make it dangerous for people back home in Kenya. Now, your president, President Uru Kenyatta, in Washington today, suddenly announced that they will be doing an evacuation of uh, some 200 Kenyan students who are in Wuhan. Uh, from your understanding in the newsroom today, what is the? do you have any sense as to what prompted the change from last week to this week? So it's not really clear what's happening with regards to evacuation of uh, the Kenyans in Wuhan, especially the students who are on scholarship. Uh, the, uh, most of the students in Wuhan currently are under Chinese scholarships. And uh, as far as uh, the information we're getting uh, as late as yesterday was that uh, the government had not spoken to any of them with, uh, about evacuation. And uh, the statement they got from Ambassador Serem was the, just an, a, a reassurance of some sort that um, the situation was under control and it was being monitored. And uh, she never mentioned anything to do with evacuation in her statement. However, Appearing before the health committee, uh, some health officials, um, specifically the administrative secretary, the chief administrative secretary for health and the principal secretary for health, said that uh, they were planning to evacuate these Kenyans, but as, uh, only after the lockdown has been lifted. So it's not really clear uh, the plans that the government has. And uh, we've tried to reach out to them to really find out exactly what they're planning because our contacts on the ground say they've not had any information to that effect. So so it's the idea that, that when you say that it will only be after the lockdown is lifted would that be the quarantine of Wuhan itself or um, you know or, or like a, how, how do they how do they kind of think of, of how the timeline would roll out uh, I think they're waiting out to see if the quarantine in Wuhan uh, will be lifted anytime soon but uh, in my opinion I feel that if you're going to evacuate people then you should do it when uh, during the critical period that they need that evacuation not after the quarantine has been lifted because then what's the need uh, for evacuating them and there's no indication that the quarantine in china will be lifted anytime soon uh, one of the things that you've been covering is how the preparations that are underway in kenya and there have been a couple of suspected cases who have all been cleared and staying in Kenya National Hospital and some of, and also in Mombasa at, uh, as well. What is your assessment of Kenya's readiness uh, for the what I think is the imminent arrival or at least the inevitable arrival of this virus? That's my suspicion. Um, there's nothing confirmed on that, but it does seem like Africa cannot be spared what we in Southeast Asia and other parts of the world are now starting to deal with. What's your sense of whether or not Kenya is prepared? So, Eric, that's a very difficult question to answer because uh, when you look at our uh, the country's uh, preparedness to respond to disease, uh, any disease outbreak, in all honesty, I'd say uh, our, we don't. We are not really prepared. 
we may have the systems, uh, we may have the equipment and the systems, but uh, uh, they've not been activated per se. Though the government says they've activated uh, the systems, I think the true test will come in when a positive case um, shows up because as it is, we don't have uh, the capacity to test for the virus for the particular 2019 NCOV. And um, the communication, there's a little transparency with regards to what is really happening uh, on uh, with the, how passengers are being handled, you know. We keep... Uh, asking for daily or uh, daily updates from the ministry and in my opinion the transparency issue has really popped up because uh, it is the, when you have a suspected case and you take it will take time for the tests to be done to be conducted yeah and you need you need to be equipped to conduct those tests. As it is, we don't have the capacity. As much as uh, we have the research laboratory, Camry, uh, we cannot test for coronavirus 2019. So all tests have to be done in South Africa and it takes time. However, when you look at all the suspected cases that have been reported so far, apart from the first case, all the other cases have uh, have had questionable results being brought back. I say questionable because um, the turnaround time that uh, the ministry seems to be giving out uh, for the results is really short. The, uh, the period between uh, quarantine, a suspected case, to uh, drawing the samples, to testing them, and getting back preliminary results uh, of any nature have been really short. Therefore, it begs the question, where did they do the tests and how, uh, how fast could they have these tests and discharge the patients uh, that were suspected to have these cases? I think that's very interesting that you say that only because there are other reasons to be worried as well. Uh, we have a subscriber to our newsletter who emailed me yesterday and said that he was passing through Bole International Airport at Addis Ababa and said that the screening was basically somebody in a mask who asked him, have you been in China in the past two weeks? And he said no, which he actually had, but he wasn't sick. And he said no, and they just let him through. When I came through uh, back in Southeast Asia where I live, the person behind the controls of the temperature scans was very immersed in her Facebook news feed. And so this is a disease of a disease as well that hides itself for up to nine days. So you can be infected and for seven to nine days it's just sitting there in your body. And so it wouldn't necessarily even come up on a detection. Cobus, it leaves a lot of reason to be worried about the the quality of the control. And there was an article that we posted on in our newsletter as well uh, last week, how in Nigeria, people are complaining that they don't have the training, the equipment, there aren't sufficient masks, they're not, the technology isn't there, that these frontline posts in Africa are just potentially not well equipped to deal with what's coming. 
you know in in some ways african governments have been quite proactive i think you know kind of they they were they they moved relatively quickly to 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 try and set up some of the screening um you know i think i think in in some cases some african governments were faster than than counterparts in richer countries um but but the 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 lack of training lack of equipment lack of testing you know is is there those are structural problems that that take a while to solve and um and it it does make africa very vulnerable it's it's you know it's a little bit of a sitting duck you know for for this kind of pandemic um so i want to actually ask you um how is this playing politically in kenya has there been a lot of political pressure um or popular popular kind of outcry about the position of the students in in wuhan and then also in in terms of like what the government is doing to protect the, the kenyans themselves within kenya Well up until recently there has uh, there hasn't been any communication per se you see public sensitization started uh, ha- started uh, i think last week and it hasn't been it hasn't been um how do i put it it hasn't been as active they've not been proactive enough to sensitize people on the measures they should take and uh, the funny thing is that <laughs> i was recently uh, looking at um, the trending topics uh, in kenya and i came across coronavirus and it's sad that uh, <laughs> people couldn't uh, were getting the uh, the ta- the name wrong you know instead of coronavirus they were just calling it something else you know and that goes to show you that people don't have adequate information when you go to the national hospital kenyatta national hospital which uh, has been identified as one of the isolation uh, places f- uh, to handle any com- any incoming situations and so far it has been the place where any suspected case uh, that lands at jkia J- the jomo kenyatta international airport uh, any suspected case that lands at the airport is taken to kenyatta but you find that in that hospital there are no posters to indicate uh, uh, to indicate that uh, the world is uh, on alert about a disease you know and what you should take uh, what you should do measures you should uh, take to protect yourself therefore it leaves the public vulnerable as for our political class uh, uh, the mindset and the Temp- uh, and the situation here is uh, currently is about uh, the death of our second president and the issues around um Kenyan politics in general the political class hasn't been proactive to take it up the ministry of health has not been very proactive you see when uh, as much as there is technology and internet proliferation in the country not everyone has access to information online and uh, therefore it means you have to go to the ground to sensitize people which uh, hasn't happened on in all honesty it hasn't happened and for me as a journalist it makes me sad because i keep reporting on this issue as much as we are, uh, we are trying to put out the information out there not uh, we can only do so much 
the government ought to do its part. Secondly, when you look at the, the situation in Wuhan, the students are complaining, the Kenyans in Wuhan are complaining and uh, they want to be brought home. But that cry, it's sort of uh, falling on deaf ears, you know, because no one is uh, really taking it up as an issue that needs to be addressed right now. And I think it's until uh, until we get a situation where there's a Kenyan in Wuhan who's been infected, that's when the reality will dawn that this is a situation that really needs to be handled. You know, here in Southeast Asia, where I live, infectious diseases and communicable diseases are a part of life, whether it's swine fever in pigs or whether it is the avian flu. Uh, there's just there's a lot of infectious diseases, and people are very well accustomed here to wearing masks and to staying away from people. And, and even though it's very crowded and at a very similar level of development than Kenya is, and I'm wondering how in in Kenya are people are people accustomed to infectious diseases? Should it come Should, eventually when if it bubbles up to the surface and people start paying attention? Are they accustomed to wearing masks, washing hands, kind of how to behave in these kind of situations? Or would this be something very new for the culture? Well, this will be quite a culture shock <laughs> with regards to wearing masks. But uh, uh, when you look at uh, this uh, the disease scope in Kenya, there's a lot, we are handling a lot of infectious diseases, but uh, mostly malaria, uh, pneumonia in children, then um, sanitation, uh, diseases that arise from uh, sanitation and hygiene. But uh, we don't, uh, we don't really have situations where people have to wear masks. So when you see someone wearing a mask, uh, you people tend to stay off. Uh, I recently came from from Thailand and uh, I had a cough and uh, I needed to wear a mask. And in the train, I was uh, everyone was uh, avoiding me because everyone's uh, mind is. Uh, wondering why is she wearing a mask you know so should there should this situation arise uh, it will be quite a cultural transformation for us as a country and Kobus, how about in south africa in South Africa, we I, I don't see anyone wearing masks. Um, you know, kind of it's also it's also not a not a culture that that's particularly kind of used to the idea of wearing a mask. For example, if you yourself have a cold, um, the way that people do in Asia. Um, so it's you know so far I I actually don't see any any um, for example at the uni- the university where where I where my office is, um, the term has just started. Um, so it's very very crowded. But they I've I haven't seen any screening i haven't seen any uh you know kind of attention being raised about the possibility of a coronavirus infection at all um like generally in in public space there seems to be very little actual action being taken and uh, you know this this would be different at at international airports specifically but you know for for the rest of the population they they they, they don't seem to particularly kind of count themselves as part of this problem right now um and that of course will will do, do change very rapidly rapidly, you know, kind of once there's a confirmed case. Um, Elizabeth, how, how do you see this impacting on Kenya's relationship with China? Um, are, are you seeing any any kind of um, 
pushback from uh, about or, or kind of intimations that that some politicians think the relationship is now too close or that they need that there needs to be distance between Kenya and China at all? I don't know how the situation will be like because um, we have a lot of uh, business uh, relations with China and China has uh, heavily invested in Kenya so far. So I think that uh, that could be one of the things that is is influencing our response and even our response uh, towards preparedness and uh, even the evacuation of uh, the Kenyans in Wuhan. I have a feeling our China-Kenya relationship uh, could could be having an impact to that, you know. So I, uh, going forward, as uh, days go by, it re- it's something to look at because uh, how... That, uh, how China will respond should Kenya decide to evacuate these students? For example, sh- uh, will will the scholarships be taken away? Are those th- some of the things that uh, inf- are informing the government's reluctance uh, to this evacuation conversation? You know, it's something to watch. Yeah, I'm just curious if people will make the connection that should the the virus have an outbreak in Kenya, will they blame China for it? Will they direct their anger or their frustration towards the Chinese? Or will this just be one of many communicable diseases that Africans, unfortunately, often have to deal with in many parts of the continent, and they just go, that's a part of life? Do you think that people will make the connection with China? Well, people are already making those connections, you know, but uh, I don't also think it's uh, just a Kenyan issue, given that uh, uh, the continent, uh, China has had a lot of impact, financial impacts uh, on the continent. So it will be interesting to see how Africans particularly react to uh, a positive case should it uh, should there be one in the continent. Because now um, I think there is a lot of China influence or with regards to how we respond and how we act towards uh, this virus. Support for this podcast comes from the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University School of Journalism in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at WitsChinaAfrica or visit africachinareporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars. So one of, one of Africa's big problems um, is that its borders, that borders of African countries are very porous. Um, generally, there isn't, there isn't enough means or staff to really have, uh, to really close the border in case one needs to. People tend to move across the border back and forth a lot. Um, if the borders need to be closed, what kind of, imp- like, how do you think Kenya would do it and what kind of impact would it have on East Africa as a whole? Well, I don't think we are able to close our borders because the East African community lately has been uh, has been pushing for uh, what do you call it open borders uh, interactions and even if you close the main borders like in Namanga and Busia it will be very difficult to control uh, how people interact because every single day you find that there are, there are children and there are 
business women and men who are crossing the borders uh, to carry out their daily activities and at the end of the day they come they come back and that is the problem we had even uh, during the Ebola outbreak because uh well can uh, well some of the east african countries were reporting cases it meant that kenya remained vulnerable and little could be done about it because then uh, it would impact on the trade uh, on trade and travel in the region and given that kenya has a lot of uh, uh, it's seen as one of the critical hubs in the region you cannot uh, really pred- uh, well the prediction about how it will impact the economic uh, the economic impact on on closing our borders will be will be tremendous if i may put it that way because we we don't have uh, we don't require pass uh, visas to cross the border you know so of course if it closes the borders then it means that uh, trade is impacted people who are seeking help care no uh, can no longer seek it especially uh, Tanzanians and Ugandans and Rwandan Rwandan citizens who are coming into the country for that Last question for you because I know you have to get back to another busy day in the newsroom when we do appreciate your time. Um how just give us a sense wrapping up our discussion here. Should we be worried about Kenya or do you think Kenya will rise to the occasion should coronavirus make it into its borders? Just give us a sense of of what you think will happen and how well Kenya will deal with this. As a journalist, I am worried. I have to say that uh, I am worried uh, about our preparedness because as it is we may be, we may have the capacity but we are not treating it, we are not treating the issue as ser- with the seriousness it requires so should there be a case um, the continent should there be a case in Kenya the continent ought to to worry because the time with which the country responds to the case and how it handles the case will really impact on a lot of things and it will impact on uh, a lot of relations in the continent so we have we really have to have a high index of suspicion which currently i don't think there is and secondly uh, people uh the government should be able to create facilities where people are able to be quarantined for the period that, for which they are required to be quarantined as it is right now if you have a suspected case it's immediately tested which is fine they are following the who protocol but the response time and the turnaround time is really questionable Elizabeth Merab is a health and science reporter at the Daily Nation newspaper in Kenya. She is following the coronavirus story. Uh, Elizabeth, if people want to follow you on Twitter, what is the best way to get a hold of you? And what's your name on Twitter where you're putting out your stories? My username is at emaclins, but you can just uh, search for Elizabeth Merab. I share what is happening in the country. We are 
we are keeping an eye on what is happening in the country daily and uh, we are updating it as it happens. You can also follow the Daily Nation newspaper on Twitter. We will put links to the Daily Nation, also Daily Nation breaking news and your Twitter account. We thank you so much for taking the time to join us and for sharing your insights on this, uh, what will hopefully not be a serious issue, but it does feel like it's going that way. So we, we wish you the very best. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me, Eric. Kobus, Elizabeth's comments in some ways validate some of the fears that I've been having because here in Asia, and I'm living with this now in Southeast Asia, where schools are closed, people are afraid. This is a big thing. I mean, tens of thousands of people in China are infected with it. They are concerned here in Vietnam where they're building temporary hospitals. They're getting ahead of it right now. They're building the hospitals in anticipation that they're going to have a lot of cases. There's fear here. I mean, it's real, genuine fear. And Vietnam, in some cases, is very much like Africa because if this thing gets a hold here, there's nothing to stop it. They just don't have the resources to stop it. It's going to rip through. Remember, there's no vaccine. (laughs) This thing doesn't have a cure right now. And I'm just, I'm very, very concerned about the situation in Africa because this is an insidious virus. It, It goes undetected. And in some ways, you remember when we were covering Ebola, you said something very interesting a couple years ago. You said Ebola, and it was something to this effect that it's a love disease in some ways because it really infects the people who are closest to you, which is your family members for the most part. And there is a little hint of that here as well, that people who get infected go home and the people that are closest to them are most vulnerable. And and there's no break. And when Elizabeth in some ways is kind of painting a picture in Kenya that you would think Kenya is going to be better prepared than Malawi, Mali, Chad, I mean, pick any of the lesser developed countries in Africa. And if Kenya is, people just aren't paying attention to it, where they have more resources than other parts of the continent, uh, we really should be afraid if this thing lands in, in Africa. I mean, I'm not trying to be alarmist and I don't want to imply that this is, it's definitely going to happen, but given the way things are going, there's no reason to think it won't. Yeah, I also think that it's, you know, it's it's remarkable that Africa doesn't have a recorded case so far, um, which kind of makes one wonder whether the this kind of difficulty in testing for it, you know, the the way that she describes how a lot of a lot of the testing has to be done out of other African countries in South Africa and sent back, you know, like that makes me th- worry that there might be people, infected people walking around that, you know, and, and that the that the, the kind of mechanisms of the state just, just don't know about them. Um, so that certainly is very worrying. Um, the, you know, it, it of course then reveals all of the, all of the ways that, that Africa is very vulnerable to, to these kind of, these kind of outbreaks because of all of the structures that are not in place. Um, And, you know, it'll be very interesting to see whether Africa, what kind of lessons Africa takes from from the Ebola experience um, and whether any of those lessons are actually applicable to this case. Um, what do you think? Do, do you think that Africa, because Africa, of course, not only in Ebola, but also in terms of, also in dealing with HIV and AIDS, has had a lot of 
experience in dealing with pandemics, but not this particular kind of pandemic. Um, do, do you think there's any lessons that they can take from previous experiences? Well, it's interesting you bring that up because last week I was in Washington, D.C., and I had a number of meetings with government stakeholders there at various different agencies. And one of the things that emerged from those discussions was, and it's interesting you talk about Ebola and HIV, because in both cases, it was the United States that played the critical role in taming the spread of those awful, awful outbreaks. So PEPFAR uh, has saved tens of millions of people's lives in Africa and has been really one of the greatest things that the United States has ever done for humanity. I mean, it's just remarkable. There's no way to overstate what a contribution that has been to provide the antiretroviral drugs to people suffering from AIDS in Africa. Same with Ebola. The United States pumped in three, between 300 and $400 million. I mean, the Chinese were there, but nowhere near at the levels of Ebola. There is not the appetite in Washington right now to do that again. And it was brought up to me on a number of occasions that what happens if the coronavirus or something like it has an outbreak, the Trump administration isn't really keen to spend a quarter of a billion dollars to help Africans as much anymore. So I don't know if it's something that Africans can count on anymore, that the United States will always be there to provide that indispensable containment role for these types of communicable diseases. Something to think about here. And certainly we're not seeing anything from the Chinese coming out of this. I even tweeted back to Ambassador Lin Songtian at one point because they were doing all these rah-rah tweets of like, look how amazing China is. And, and it is amazing what, what they're doing in China, building hospitals in 10 days and mobilizing the whole society. Yeah, sure, fine. But I said, maybe you want to start focusing a little bit on fortifying and helping defenses in Africa, bringing material, technologies, personnel, equipment. People don't have enough surgical masks in Africa right now. I mean, if you don't have enough surgical masks, then pretty much everything else is lost. So I just thought I was a little bit annoyed seeing all the Chinese rah, rah, rah for what's going on in China when these ambassadors, I think, should be working with their host governments to say, we're going to start bringing in better screening technology for you. We're going to bring in our personnel and we're going to help you to make sure that this doesn't bowl you over the same way it has in China. Yeah, I mean that would be you know that that's a very important point. Um, the I think the 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 fact that it's that the discussion is going in terms of what national governments are going to do to to help other continents, you know, points to the boring and not you know like longer term problem of you know kind of a lack of multilateralism and multilateral uh, decision making and coordination in the world you know which is which is the same problem we're facing on on something like climate change you know kind of is like if if you still if 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 the highest level of authority you have are national governments then you're always going to be dealing with with their their kind of divided loyalty between what is good for the world and what is good for their particular the electorate in a, a particular kind of short, relatively short-term election cycle, um, you know, and I think the the fact that the that the Trump administration generally tends to be less sympathetic to to kind of helping other countries than a lot of you know previous administrations, um, you know, will will make that visible. But that being said, the World Health Organization is definitely on the point on this on all of this, and African governments are really relying on the WHO for guidance and support. 
So that's re- it's encouraging in one sense that that the WHO isn't is a, is a force for multilateralism and and apparently you know kind of also a force directing research for a possible vaccine. I saw I saw reports that there are they're meeting in Switzerland. Um, the vaccine obviously research the race for for to try and develop a vaccine is already on. You know it's been on for a few weeks, but they there's a they they're holding they're hosting um, you know kind of specific targeted meetings to try and kind of like speed that up in Switzerland next year, next week, I mean, um, you know, so so that, you know, that is encouraging. But at the moment, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty bleak and scary situation. The last part is the timing of all this. So 2020 was supposed to be the year of preparing for the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation Summit that's going to take place in Dakar next year. But that is going to be put into doubt because I think for the next six to six to seven months at least that every Chinese ambassador in Africa is going to be consumed with what's going on back home. Xi Jinping, who would normally be greeting and some African had a state at least once or twice a month rolling through town with the kind of customary picture and the, the whole diplomatic apparatus is geared towards engaging Africa. That is now shut down. There's no travel the Chinese are not thinking about it. Chinese investment is going to slow. People-to-people exchanges are going to basically melt away because there are very few direct flights. Even mail between the two is now being stopped because there's no flights. So if you ordered a product on Alibaba to be delivered in Johannesburg, which is quite common actually, or on Kilimall in Kenya, uh, it's not coming or it's going to be severely delayed because it's going to come by boat. So the whole relationship is going to to just dial down. And that's been, and, and quickly, because I don't think uh, you know any Chinese ambassador is bringing over business delegations from state-owned enterprises right now. They're in a, uh, that's pure speculation on my part. I have no way of knowing, but it just seems like everybody's in a you know, hunker mentality right now. They're just bunkering down. And so it's just gonna dial down the relationship and the activity's going to slow. And as you know, I do the newsletter every day, and I'm sitting here for six, seven hours putting together the top stories. There is no other story right now. A Huawei story popped up here, uh, you know, a little minor trade story popped up there, but it is all coronavirus all the time from 50 different angles. What's the impact on this relationship when that happens? So you can maybe stomach a few losses, but what about the loss of momentum in the relationship that this will cause? I, I think yeah, there, I think there's diff, there's definitely going to be an impact. Um, but at the same time, I don't think you know. Can, I don't think it's going to the crisis is going to consume people's attention or or kind of like push all of these other issues off the table permanently um, or even as long as the outbreak lasts. You know, as the way we 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 know that these kind of attention cycles go. Like at the moment, we're in this white hot you know kind of moment of of max attention paid to to this issue if it you know if it becomes a lot worse then of course you know kind of then you know the the reality will start shifting to accommodate that but i don't think this necessarily means that you know that all of these other issues like like for example preparing for focac it's not going to be permanently disrupted they'll just they'll just kind of like be reshuffled in order to make space for this issue um you know so so i think i think it is that kind of depressing thing of where how people no matter what kind of crisis they're in they manage to find a way of just like moving forward yeah and people will adapt i think that's good that you provide that 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 broader context 
But it would be interesting to think about because this will be the first FOCAC in a period of, res- of real severe economic recession in China. So right now, on, on the oil demand, uh, what, there, what Bloomberg was saying was that Chinese oil consumption from the beginning of the year until now has just fallen off a cliff by 20%. Three million barrels a day are just taken off the table now. And so I just wondered that the, the government in, in China is going to need so much money to deal with propping up the economy that will they then still continue with a $60 billion package on FOCAC or why, might we see now a much more scaled down? I just feel, again, no way to tell right now, but it is something to think about that they may pare down their package quite a bit simply because they don't have the money to throw around like they did in the previous FOCACs. Yeah, I mean, quite quite possibly. I mean, I think, you know, in the in the larger scheme, I think what we're seeing now is what we're seeing in the 21st century. I think I think this is the to to a certain extent this this kind of problem is the dawn of what the 21st century is going to be like. Because you know, like we know that that these pandemics they don't happen by accident, right? Kind of, they're, they're the result of environmental destruction. Um, that that you know, the the the, the untold story. Um, and I think that it's always very interesting for me that HIV/AIDS, as a crisis, is always siloed away from from climate change, as as if they are completely unrelated crises. Like HIV jumped from you know from primates to humans because of of ecosystem disruption. Um, so in lots of ways, you know, HIV/AIDS was a kind of a canary in the coal mine indi- indicator and early indicator of what this kind of environmental uh, you know disruption is gonna is gonna look like for human societies um, and climate change like m- many people have pointed out that climate change are, are shifting disease zones and they're freeing up a, a, a lot more disease potential disease vectors um, so this kind of it, it and and it throws in in stark relief how interdependent the world is how much of how much of things that are that are um, crucial to economies are produced or bought, you know, thousands of miles away, uh, you know, through very very complicated supply chains, um, and how much of na- of the developing world's economy is based on the willingness and political viability of rich nations giving money to them? Um, all of those large systemic, you know, kind of realities. Are thrown up in the air once one of these crises hit, and with you know kind of with climate change accelerating, these crises are going to hit more and more and more and more. Um, you know, kind of, and in in the process, kind of galvanizing you know potential kind of reactionary forces within the developed world, um, and throwing up all these questions about how much money these these governments are going to have in the future to you know kind of to 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 pay to the developing world um, when they are busy dealing with multiple impacting kind of, you know, feedback loop crises in their own countries. Um, so, you know, in a lot of ways, this is the, the China-Africa relationship as we know it up to now is in lots of ways a 21st century relationship, um, you know, in the sense that, you know, it's this big non-Western economy hooking up with this this kind of massive, massively developed kind of uh, demographic boom, you know, kind of emerging market. But in other ways, it's still very much based on on structures and flows and 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 practices that were set up in the twentieth century, um, you know, including international aid regimes and 
and uh, you know kind of transnational investment in oil exploration and you know all, all of all of the things that that we think of as permanent and somehow unchangeable but all of those things are going to be thrown up in the air by climate change anyway you know so so in a, in a way for me the it's it's kind of a glimpse of the future you know kind of and 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 a glimpse that reveals how we're going to have to start thinking about how these systems work in order to make them more resilient. Well, that's just too depressing for me. So I can't end the show on such a depressing note, Kobus. So we're going to end the show on the only silver lining to this crisis that, I can, that I've been able to detect. <laughs> and believe it or not, there actually is a small silver lining here. The Chinese, as part of their measures to contain the, the outbreak have banned live animals for sale in, in markets. And that's really been the problem both with the SARS outbreak and now with the novel coronavirus, that the Chinese have a tendency, a habit, a pattern of wanting to eat exotic animals, and exotic animals carry these pathogens, which are extraordinarily dangerous, as we're seeing right now. So they have banned it. Now, conservation groups are pleading with the Chinese government to make the ban permanent. And that is the good news that we hope will come out of this for the pangolin and for so many other African wildlife species. Because if really the Chinese do clamp down on this trade for once and for all, because they were supposed to have done this back in 2003 and 2004 after the SARS epidemic, which came out of a wet market in Guangzhou. I think it was Guangzhou. And now in Wuhan, it came out of another wet market. They were talking that it might have come from fish, seafood, or snakes, something. But really, clamping down on the hygiene standards and the wildlife trade would be a net benefit. So again, just want to leave on a slightly positive note and not be too depressing, because this has not been our most uplifting show. Yep, no, it's good. You know, kind of that, that I'm glad that you managed to find a silver lining and that. <laughs> and, and we managed to avoid to having to like here, cheer Kobus. everyone up by like singing yeah. a song or something, you know, kind of which no one wants. So <laughs> no, no, I wouldn't want to. That would end our our show. Uh, but listen, if you guys are all the way at the end of this show, and this is a topic that interests you, the daily newsletter that Kobus and I put together is going to be something that you want. Uh, it's being widely read in Washington. When I was there, it was, I was just blown away by how many people in the White House, the State Department, in the think tanks, at the universities, are reading it uh, and, and valuing it. And so that was very exciting for me to see that it's actually getting a lot of traction there among Africa scholars, China watchers, and whatnot. So uh, I really hope you'll check it out. We have a two-week free trial. Just go to our website, chinaafricaproject.com, sign up. You will get two weeks just to see if you like it. Everybody else seems to like it. I like it. Kobus likes it. We're very proud of the work that we do on it. It is a full daily intelligence brief on everything going on in the China-Africa space. Right now, that means it is every aspect of the debate around coronavirus, the preparations that are being done in Africa, what's being done by the Chinese and so forth, and the politics and diplomacy of it all. So we hope that you'll you'll take a look and uh, and let us know what you think. We'd love to hear from you. You can always email us directly. Kobus at ChinaAfricaProject.com is his email address. And my email address is Eric at ChinaAfricaProject.com. Any questions, feedback, comments, complaints, critiques, we love interacting with everyone every day that uh, drops us a note. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. For Kobus van Staden in Johannesburg, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. 
head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Gwobas at Stadinsky or Eric at eOlander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China and Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com. <laughs>